0: Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist Ryan. And today, The Poison Lab is on psilocybin the active component of magic mushrooms. In today's episode, we're interviewing psilocybin D researcher, Dr. Paul Hudson. He's the director of the Transdisciplinary Center for Research in Psychoactive Substances at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a co-author of the study, Single-Dose Psilocybin Treatment for Major Depressive Disorder, a randomized clinical trial, that was published in JAMA on August 31st, 2023, which is just one of the many psilocybin research studies that Dr. Hudson has conducted, including other studies evaluating things like pharmacokinetics, psilocybin's impact on the QTC, and the subjective experience that users have with varying doses. This is a really exciting episode where we'll hear about some fascinating data that supports the use of this drug in treating many different health conditions that frequently intersect with toxicology. You see, one of the most common reasons a toxicologist might be consulted on a patient is because they've taken a medication for self-harm, usually because of an underlying mental health condition. And it's not uncommon to see the same patient multiple times for repeated suicide attempts, because the mental health conditions that led to the self-harm in the first place are still there after the toxicity resolves. That is why I'm incredibly excited about this episode we're going to hear all about the data that has given psilocybin breakthrough drug status for treating major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression, as well as its impact on other health conditions like substance use disorder, which frequently lead to drug toxicity. So in this episode, Dr. Hudson will share his wisdom on doing human subject psilocybin research. We'll spend some time talking about the exciting evidence for how this can help a variety of disease states dive into its potential mechanisms. Then we'll talk about how you get into psilocybin research in the first place. How do you get an FDA IND? What DA approval do you need? Where do you get the psilocybin? And where do you store it? It is really a fun discussion. It is very likely that this drug, along with a few others, will be FDA approved within the next four to five years. And I know I learned quite a lot about what the landscape of its use is going to look like after that approval. Not to mention learning new insights in terms of its potential toxicity and its management. One last thing before we jump in. We're talking about the benefits of psilocybin today. And there are those out there that might extrapolate these findings to elicit psilocybin. Remember, all the studies we're talking about today were done in controlled settings with analytically confirmed psilocybin at known doses in appropriately screened volunteers. Psilocybin is still federally Schedule 1, so getting your hands on it outside of a clinical trial means you're going through avenues that aren't going to guarantee dosage, purity, or safe setting. Our standard disclaimer applies here. This show is not advocating for the illicit use of substances. Unfortunately, people who use illicit substances expose themselves to wide dose fluctuations, potential contaminants that can cause adverse health effects, and potentially unsafe settings that may lead to injury. If you or a loved one are struggling with substance use disorder, call 1-800-662-4357 to access the SAMHSA free helpline and get the care that you deserve. All right, with that, let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. You are listening to The Poison Lab. I'm your host, Ryan, and this is a very exciting episode for me because of the guests that we have today. I am so pleased to introduce Dr. Paul Hudson.
1: Hello, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: He's one of the premier psilocybin researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Not only is he here to talk to us about his experiences and expertise in studying psilocybin, which is a long-known natural compound in an emerging pharmaceutical but he's also my old pharmacokinetics professor <laughs> uh and uh, I really am thrilled to have him on the show before I kind of dive into everything Dr Hudson would you mind uh giving the listeners just a little bit of background on uh where you work and how you kind of got there today
1: I was I'm old enough to have been in the BS Farm uh, farm D uh, sequence. So I got a, a BS farm out of uh, University of Washington, Seattle after a master's in chemistry, uh, which persuaded me that I didn't want a lifetime in the chemistry lab. And so went into pharmacy, went to Tennessee for a PharmD, and then a two year stint uh, with Bill Evans at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, getting some skills in oncology and pharmacokinetics. Uh, spent five years uh, in Chicago at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Then, uh, for the past 34 years, have been at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison. Was brought up here primarily for the Phase One uh, Developmental Therapeutics Program at the uh, University of Wisconsin Cancer Center, focusing on pharmacokinetics, and then transitioned over to palliative care symptom management for about 20 years, where I still have a clinical practice. But uh, about about a year ago now, was asked to lead the uh, Cancer Pharmacology Laboratory at the Cancer Center. So back into developmental therapeutics, uh, pharmacokinetics and uh, getting into uh, the area of theranostics, radioactive uh, diagnostic and then therapeutic uh, products. But while I was in the um, symptom management palliative care area, I I looked at some remedies for symptoms associated with cancer and uh, held a couple of INDs for natural products and was pulled into a discussion with some other clinicians and uh, the local hospice, and also the Linton from ProMega, who wanted to support uh, some psychedelic research similar to that he had seen at Johns Hopkins. And so we were asked to do a phase one pharmacokinetic study um, based on my background with with the the cancer therapeutics. So between uh, 2013, 2015, we did a dose escalation study in patients. Um, sorry, in normal subjects uh, to de- develop the pharmacokinetic profile. Um, also, some QTC issues that we can talk about later. So um, it's not the journey that I thought I'd have uh, when I started into pharmacy. I didn't expect to be doing psychedelic uh, research ten years ago, but uh, it's been a good ride.
0: I I have to say, so I came across your research for the first time in one of our alumni magazines. Um, And it said the title was something like, learn about the drug basement in the in the school of pharmacy. (laughs) And it had a picture of Paul, uh, this very nice looking gentleman. And I said, I think that's my pharmacokinetics professor. And I was just a little taken aback. I was like, "I, I guess I never would have pinned him for it. But it really obviously... With your experience in palliative care and its potential role there, as well as your expertise in pharmacokinetics, uh, it seems to to uh, be right up your alley. So that that is a fascinating journey, and it's interesting where uh, expertise can take you. I do have to give you a, a shout out or a thank you um, when you did teach me pharmacokinetics. I often thought to myself, well, I use this?" and now. Right after I came out of uh, PGY2, one of my very first kind of academic works I had the opportunity to work on was a book chapter about the changes in pharmacokinetics of drugs during hyperbaric oxygen. And I was like, well, how does this really change anything? But well, it turns out hyperbaric oxygen changes um, liver blood flow. And that. And then I was like, wait a minute, I think, I think Dr. Hutz had taught me something about high extraction and low extraction drugs being blood flow dependent. And oh I really got to go down that rabbit hole. So you, you use what you know. And I know that because of you. So thank you. That was a, a, a helpful jumping off point in my career. Well, well done, Mike. So for the listeners, uh, today we're going to discuss an overview of psilocybin, you know its mechanisms and potential benefits, with Doctor Hudson, and then we're going to go on and get into the nitty gritty details of how to perform research with psilocybin, and dive into the findings from Doctor Hudson's studies, and hopefully be able to glean some some wisdom from the vast depth uh, that we have here in our guest. So, uh, Doctor Hudson, would you mind for any listeners who I guess might not be familiar? What is psilocybin and how does it work in the human brain?
1: Uh, psilocybin is a uh, natural product found in the psilocybin uh, species of mushrooms, and there are many subspecies. Um, and it is a serotonin uh, agonist. HT, the serotonin 2A receptor, is the, the primary target, although there is an entourage effect, we feel. And <clears throat> that entourage effect, may describe some of the different experiences, different time courses of other psychedelics of that class, but psilocybin is the one that is most heavily studied, and I think that one of the reasons for that is just its long traditional use in sacramental um, ceremonies in primarily in Central and South America. Yeah, <clears throat> when, we, when we came to the FDA and others that come to the FDA, there was that, I think, a uh, a sense that both with the traditional use and also the the use of LSD and psilocybin in the late 60s, that uh, we could jumpstart some of this research without some of the processes that would typically go into a um, the development of a new pharmaceutical.
0: And could you comment on where we are seeing this potential therapy being employed? What sorts of conditions is it having an impact on? I know there's depression, potentially substance use disorder, would you be able to comment on what some of the early data is showing and why everyone's so excited about
1: this? The FDA has given a uh, psilocybin breakthrough drug status uh, for the development of its use as a therapy for depression. Uh, Usona Institute in Fitchburg, Wisconsin has uh, an IND for psilocybin for the treatment of major depressive disorder, which is a more general disorder. Usona Institute is a not-for-profit Medical Research Organization, and then Compass Pathways, based in the UK, a for-profit corporation, uh, has also been given breakthrough drug status uh, recognition for its studies of psilocybin for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. A little bit more uh, tough nut to to crack, I think. In both cases, the both groups have published uh, really encouraging articles about the effects of uh, a single dose of psilocybin to relieve many of the symptoms of depression, one of the questions is the durability of that response. And and you ask about other indications for which it's being used, Ryan. There are other studies uh, that are really encouraging with the use of psilocybin for the treatment of alcohol use disorder, done by Michael Bogenschutz at New York University, and tobacco cessation or tobacco uh, abuse uh, initiated by Matthew Johnson and now with a NIH-funded Phase three study, the response to two to three doses of psilocybin was really dramatic and rather sudden. And in fact, uh, the data suggests that in these patients who had a fairly long history of tobacco abuse, uh, at six months, uh, 12 of the 15 in the initial study were completely abstinent. They just went cold turkey, no patches, no gum. Uh, Something happened. And uh, we are Uh, looking at at the university of wisconsin studies of psilocybin in individuals with opioid use disorder and another study looking at psilocybin in individuals with methamphetamine use disorder so we have high hopes that we will see uh encouraging signals from that those pilot studies
0: and that is really really fascinating so i think a lot of people know about the new england journal of medicine study that uh you know showed 25 milligrams of psilocybin was equivalent to uh ssri at six weeks so a single dose of a medicine had the same impact as a daily medicine which you know is from our standpoint you know the what's the ideal drug for managing some of these disease states uh you would like to give it once and have it work forever uh but i don't think that'll ever actually occur but you know having something give be given once 25 milligrams of psilocybin and then have it work for six weeks that's pretty impressive and
1: so so, that was uh I think one of the things that you say about the psilocybin is that the effect is very dramatic very quick we also see that with ketamine uh the durability of ketamine treatment for depression doesn't seem to be as durable as many of the responses to uh, psilocybin and I want to emphasize that one dose does not fix everybody it's not a panacea and not everybody has a durable remission but uh, there is a signal there after one dose that I think we need to uh, examine more more carefully, to, you know, quite honestly, Ryan, one of the questions that we have not yet answered is, do we need a booster dose in six weeks or a month um, or when symptoms start relapsing? Is right. depression better served by two doses as opposed to one or three doses or or what? But um, the, the responses to one dose are truly dramatic and enough to give it breakthrough drug status recognition by the FDA.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really, and I love that you brought up ketamine. That's something near and dear to my heart. We use it in the emergency department hundreds of times a day uh, and, you know, for pain as well as, you know, sedation and intubation. And every once in a while I'm giving, you know, ketamine to someone and I'm like, I wonder if we're treating their depression too. But It's, it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, but that's a whole a topic that hopefully we're going to get to actually near the end of this, this episode. I do want to dive into some of the other emerging therapeutics for these types of of uh you know very hard to treat conditions, substance use disorder, major depression, refractory depression, but you also brought up so I think that everyone is familiar with the depression studies, but the burgeoning use in substance use disorder is really promising in the toxicology world. we intersect not only with mental health conditions very frequently. you know a common reason for poisoning is self harm, and oftentimes underlying uh, depression could be a cause of that, so it's be- amazing to see. Uh, uh, something with such a dramatic impact on depression. But also, uh, we interact with substance use disorder constantly. You know, the harms of using unregulated substances that lead to severe outcomes, skin necrosis, endocarditis, all sorts of things, dose fluctuations. So any tool in the toolkit to be able to reduce the utilization of a number of substances is incredibly valuable. So hearing about its impact on alcohol use disorder and, and nicotine even... Uh, you know, smoking causes a lot of problems, but uh, I'm really excited to hear about the methamphetamine and opioid. You know, we have taken major efforts to start managing opioid use disorder when we meet it in the emergency department. So we've started, you know, initiating people on buprenorphine and getting a warm handoff to psychiatry, but methamphetamine in particular is sort of a different thing altogether. And, you know, I think there's a highlight High rate of relapse, uh, which in all substance use disorder, but in methamphetamine, particularly high. So, hearing that there is a potential therapeutic avenue there is is really impressive. Uh, so, listeners, this is why people are getting excited. Is this is sort of a novel approach? We have a one-time dose, or you know, multiple doses potentially with dramatic and durable effects. So, hopefully, that sets the stage for why people are really interested in how this is going to be used and, and how they could potentially employ it to help their patients. Can you tell me a little bit, you, you mentioned in the beginning, but so what sparked your interest in psilocybin and and how is, how did that then become this effort at UW? I believe there's the, it's the transdisciplinary research. Oh, I'm going to mess this one
1: up. I'm the director of the Transdisciplinary Center for Research in Psychoactive Substances at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And initially we had uh, been approved for uh, the, the center by the university administration as a center for transdisciplinary research and psychoactive substances until the chancellor's office noticed the ac- acronym for that was WISC-TRIPS. And uh, <laughs> so we were asked to modify the name of our center. Um, but actually, this does go back to 2013. Uh, Bill Linton, who's the CEO of Promega, has been a, a big uh, supporter of legitimate scientific research with psilocybin. And that arose, as I understand it, from a neighbor of his with uh, ovarian cancer who had visited the program at Johns Hopkins. And she uh, received a dose of psilocybin there under the guidance of Roland Griffiths, uh, uh, the the linchpin, if you will, of modern psychedelic research. And uh, she came back a changed woman, which much more at peace uh, with her diagnosis and with, uh, Her remaining weeks uh, able to enjoy life much more than she had been before, and Bill wanted to uh, bring that to the University of Wisconsin Madison, and actually to develop it as a uh, FDA-approved medication. And so I suggested that we should do that um, initially at the university through a phase one study because the pharmacokinetics, dose escalation, the, the safety profile at higher doses had not been described, and so that's really. Where I got involved. Uh, Initially we thought we'd be using it in patients with uh, terminal diagnoses. Uh, But frankly, for the phase one study, we felt that the safety profile was enough that was good enough that we could use normal volunteers. Certainly, the experience uh, traditionally in in the 60s, 70s suggested that psychedelics were safe enough in that context to to do the dose escalation study. We did that uh, using kind of the same kind of profile that I would use. At the uh, in a cancer study, first in humans, with uh, individuals getting escalating doses, pharmacokinetic sampling, urine sampling, and uh, 12-lead ECGs to kind of monitor uh, heart rhythm. One of the big things that came out of that research, Ryan, was that we were able to show that there was enough variability in the pharmacokinetics of psilocybin given orally. You didn't have to really dose it by weight, that just a flat dose was to be sufficient which is going to simplify uh, the research. Uh, It was was nice to be able to simplify things a lot. In the meantime, other groups have been looking at specific indications as we have now started as well, but frankly most of the work that we're doing here at the University of Wisconsin Madison now is in investigator-initiated studies for uh, understanding the mechanism uh, of psilocybin as well as the opioid and the methamphetamine studies that that I've mentioned before.
0: I'm going to interrupt just for a second. So you're talking about the mechanism a little bit. In one of your studies, you were actually doing a dose escalation study and sort of grading the mystical experience that the patients had. Right. Uh, it looks like you use the mystical experience questionnaire, looks at uh, things like feelings of unity with everything, oneness with everything, stuff like that. So you you were actually getting into evaluating the impact of how intense the mystical experience was And then looking at that's impact on the positive subjective feelings of the patient. And this brought up the question for me, uh, sort of do people need to have that mystical experience or the trip or the psychedelic experience, so to speak, in order to actually have the benefit with psilocybin in terms of uh, major depression or substance use disorder? And the reason I bring this up is because I give people mystical experiences in the emergency department all the time with ketamine. (laughs) The mystical experience is kind of sending them to the K hole, so to speak, or when they are disassociated. So, you know, when their perception of reality is disassociated from their consciousness, anyone who works in the ED has seen someone disassociate, and it's a pretty clear thing. So, when I started reading about ketamine for depression, I, of course, thought, oh, well, you're probably disassociating them. And then they have this profound, experience, and come back less depressed. This was, you know, I'm not saying that I was very advanced in this literature. Uh, but then I was listening to a Yale researcher talk about ketamine for depression. And he brought up that the doses that are used are actually dissociative. They're about 0.5 megs per kilo over 40 minutes, or 0.2 megs per kilo over 5 minutes. And anyone who works in the ED, we've given much higher than this for sedation, you know, sometimes for pain you go higher than those doses. So while this association does sometimes happen when you're using ketamine for depression, it's more of a byproduct it appears than the actual effect. And I don't know if there is an answer to this, but I'm curious if you've seen this in in any of the research that you've come across, or in any of your research regarding: Do you need to have the mystical experience to have the positive neuroplastic effects of the psychedelics, or? you know, what, well, let's say someone is microdosing or somehow blocking the psychedelic experience. Are they going to have that same lasting durable effect, um, that has been shown in some of these trials?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, there are uh, studies that are looking at that. I think at Stanford, they're looking at what happens if you give psilocybin to somebody who is under general anesthesia, which we thought was a little bit, uh, a little bit, you know, iffy in terms of safety, but, uh, they, uh, I think they are ans- asking a very interesting question. Another group is looking at what happens if you give psilocybin with uh, respiridone, which should block its effect of the HT2A receptor, which um, I'm not expecting to see much happen, quite honestly. We have an interesting study underway that is uh, well, actually, we completed the pilot study. We're looking at going on to a fairly large um, cohort where we're giving oral psilocybin to normal volunteers, and in addition, we're giving intravenous boluses of midazolam. The intent there is to use the amnestic effect of midazolam to try to block the memory of their psychedelic experience and to see what kind of impact that has. Um, We're finding, quite honestly, in the pilot study that it's difficult to block the memory of their psychedelic experience. We had to do a dose escalation of the midazolam, two doses that are substantially higher than what you might see with a normal colonoscopy dose, for example, to block the memory of the procedure. We are finding that it's safe to do that. We felt that that's appropriate, but we're really excited to kind of poke at this mechanism of how the psilocybin might be working and what's necessary for the therapeutic effect of the, the, the psilocybin, whether some memory of that psychedelic experience is important Worth, as you say, it's just a byproduct of something else that's going on in the brain. Very interesting.
0: So, well, I have to ask now. So, you know, in toxicology, a lot of the people here listening work in the toxicology field, and mm-hmm. there's kind of a, a, I don't know what it, it's a phrase, but, you know, toxicology is there's infinite poisons, uh, if only 50 antidotes. So, 99% of poisoning is, is, benzodiazepines in supportive care and we really push benzodiazepine dosing and if i you know if we ever get consulted on a case of potential psilocybe agitation probably the first thing we're going to do is benzodiazepines and sometimes you know we're giving large large doses of midazolam diazepam. we like to what we say explore the dose response curve right if you gave some and they're still agitated you need to give more than you gave so i'm curious would you might do you have information on how many what doses you were using to try to facilitate amnesia or not amnesia, but the amnestic effect?
1: We were looking at basically a mild, a light sedation dose, uh, like you would use in a coloscopy. Okay, and okay. We, we were bolusing uh, every um, 15 minutes, but also based on their uh, recall and basically their response to some questions that we would ask. And so we might uh, hold off on the next dose, we might give the next dose, but, uh, yeah, we, it was. It was. There was some clinical decision making at the bedside by the anesthesiologist pushing the midazolam.
0: I'll be interested to see that as it comes out. Sorry, yeah. I just had to ask because it it intersects quite closely with the, some of the usual cares that we provide. Well, you,
1: you mentioned the the giving pushing midazolam for psychedelics, frankly, or lorazepam, um, in our drug box. If we were to need to shut down a psychedelic experience we would probably use uh, world disintegrating tablets of respiridone because that's going to block the hd2a receptor better than i think uh, the the effects of the anxiolytic effects of the benzos so very that's, that's our plan
0: very that is um uh an excellent point to bring up in in using complementary pharmacology to to actually treat the the toxin. um and i think i'm You know, usually I've almost never had any hallucinogenic tryptamine-induced agitation that I really need to hammer with, you know, benzodiazepines. They're usually relatively calm, and if you keep a nice, quiet setting and, you know, maybe they need just a little anxiolysis, they can usually do okay. Although, you know, we do have concerns about serotonin syndrome. We can get into that later, and that uh, benzos are sort of a mainstay, and then we run into using potential Serotonin receptor antagonists such as ciproheptidine or or you know risperidone, but that's a whole other bag of worms in the tox community that uh, sparks quite a lot of debate. But well, thank you for for diving into that a little bit. I'll be very interested to hear about the anesthesia study where they were given psilocybin. That'll be fascinating.
1: Dissociative versus the non-dissociative doses of ketamine. And there's a disagreement in the ketamine community about whether or not that. Uh, is an example of how we should be treating psychedelics in both therapeutic and also well-being or recreational use. There are advocates that say that the sub dissociative doses of ketamine are extremely useful in uh, psychotherapy, where you have someone who is a psychotherapist giving the dose, whether it be uh, IM or or a lozenge or whatever, and using that that dose of of ketamine to facilitate the counseling as opposed to other sites that are basically giving a large dose, uh, whether it's the esketamine nasal or an IV dose and basically walking, you know, watching the patient, making sure they're safe, but not really engaging with them and relying on the drug to do everything, if you will. And I guess we're from, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, we're of a mindset that these are, tools to assist in therapy. And so we refer to ketamine-assisted therapy. We talk about psychedelic-assisted therapy, just like uh, MAPS with their MDMA is looking at MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. So I think that there's assumption that the, the drugs are magical, that they're going to fix things all by themselves. But I'd, I'd like to discourage that. Uh, we, we find that there's a much some more substantial therapeutic benefit and more durable benefit When there is um much more preparation of this person before they get their dose uh, some attendance and some guided uh therapy during the session and then some integration and debriefing afterwards so um, we we feel that that um well we we don't feel that the drug should be expected to do everything by itself Right.
0: right i think that's an excellent point to bring up this is a tool to be used in the entire armamentarium and as we've seen a lot for mental health conditions therapy is actually the the mainstay, just like a statin might help lower cholesterol, but diet, exercise—that's the actual worker of preventing cardiovascular resistance. So, I, I agree. Thank you for bringing that up. This is not a magic bullet, and I—I I would imagine it's potentially could be higher risk for injurious use of, or maybe maladaptive brain changes without appropriate guidance and psychotherapy. But I don't—I don't know if the data is out on that.
1: But. Well, we we uh, and others that are doing legitimate uh, uh, psychedelic research are screening individuals before they get a dose uh, with the mini or SCID exams to identify some mental uh, illnesses that we would exclude from doses, uh, schizophrenia uh, and uh, type 1 bipolar, for example. Um, we we feel that these individuals might have their problems exacerbated by being dosed with psilocybin where they um, they In many respects, you could say that they lose control of their thought. And that's not necessarily something that we want to impose upon somebody who's already grappling with that. And most of the injuries, uh, if you look at the SAMHSA database, emergency room visits for pure psychedelics are really quite low and typically well-tolerated, as you suggest. Uh, Most of the harm associated with psychedelics is from accidents. from feeling like they can fly, step off of balconies, or step into traffic. And so, this is one of the reasons why uh, attendance, uh, someone who can protect that space and protect them, is really important, I think, for people that are dosing the psychedelics.
0: That's the perfect segue into our next ah. section. So, I really ah. want to get into the actual nitty gritties, uh, sort of details um, in terms of. How, who qualifies? How how do you get the volunteers? What is preparation like? So for the listeners, Dr. Hudson has published a number of studies looking at the pharmacokinetics and the safety that would essentially help psilocybin gain FDA approval as a pharmaceutical. Am I saying that correctly? Right. In 2017, you published pharmacokinetics of escalating doses of oral psilocybin in healthy adults. In 2018, high-dose psilocybin is associated with positive subjective effects in healthy volunteers. Uh, 2021 exposure response analysis to assess the concentration QTC relationship of psilocybin and psilocin. So let's talk about in, in terms of the study design, you said you looked for specific exclusions and you mentioned a few. So who was being recruited? What was, I guess, the inclusion criteria for these healthy volunteer studies? It looked like you were screening for a past positive experience with psychedelics. So none of these are psychedelic naive volunteers.
1: That first study, we went for individuals that had had a significant psychedelic experience before, because we weren't sure how they would respond to us drawing blood from them, and not just from the catheter, but if we lost the catheter, we'd have to poke them, and we weren't sure how they were going to t- handle that. It wasn't basically a non-issue uh, that these, even when we lost the catheter, had to do some phlebotomy, they were glad to do it, glad to cooperate, and so that that inclusion criterion was unnecessary. And our current studies that include normal volunteers, none of them require prior experience. It's not an exclusion criterion, unless it's been really recent psychedelic experience. But we're not making that a criterion anymore.
0: I think most of the listeners are are familiar with usually putting an IV in, not that big of a deal, but it can be a very big deal. Uh, you know, where I work, I see a lot of, you know, patients who unfortunately experience gunshot wounds and they come in and are completely fine with the gunshot wound but when we put the iv in they scream and it's so it can be very traumatic and i'm sure when you are under the effects of a potential you know psychedelic substance it there certainly seems like there could be risk so it seems like a reasonable (laughs) a thought but glad to hear there weren't any issues with that And you said there were exclusions. So you screened for what you believe to be a high-risk potential underlying psychiatric disorders that this might, has not yet shown a benefit in, right? So schizophrenia, you said, were there any other significant disorders?
1: Patient or first order relatives with schizophrenia, psychotic disorders, uh, bipolar disorders. And there are also also some cardiovascular disorders that we were concerned about based on a couple of reports in literature, um, uncontrolled hypertension. Uh, heart transplants. we also off the, not that many that are getting some psychedelics, but uh, there are a few case reports of harm from psychedelic mushrooms or associated with psychedelic, psychedelic mushroom ingestion that we thought it would be prudent to exclude uh, these individuals. Also, of course, pregnancy is an exclusion. Um, and insulin, where we might have to do blood checks during the session, although I think realistically we could do that too, uh, if if necessary. Uh, Cigarette addiction, where they would, if they didn't have a patch, where they would get anxious and need to go get another smoke. Uh, But in general, it's well tolerated. And again, uh, most of these, the, the psilocybin doses that we're giving appear to be very well tolerated. I, I do need to point out that we do, we and others see a, an increase in the heart rate and the blood pressure associated with it. And typically, this peaks about the same time that the concentration peaks. And we, we've got a paper coming out that summarizes uh, some of that experience as well. But the, uh, the time course suggests and the dose response re- suggests that it's more associated with the experience rather than the concentration. That is, that at the same concentration, we see very different levels of heart rate um, and blood pressure elevations, depending on where during their session they are and how many doses they've already had. So the first session, quite honestly, with the lowest dose, um, in many cases, had the highest increase in blood pressure, highest increase in heart rate. This is a wild experience, and I think that that was the primary cause for some of these vital same sign changes. But that came down. We didn't have to give any antihypertensives to anyone, um, and I don't think anyone else that I can recall elsewhere has had to break into their quote emergency drug box uh, during the psychedelic. And typically, if we're giving anything um, to these individuals, it's for a mild headache that they might get twelve to eight to twelve hours after the dose. And so, hmm. some pylenol or acetaminophen seems to be all that we uh, typically have to break out.
0: Well, okay, I had a question about the drug box, so we might as well get into it now. <laughs> so so, oh, and these are all great things. So if someone out there is considering exploring you know research in one of these sectors where you might be inducing a mystical experience or a dissociative experience in a patient, thinking about the fact that, oh, well, what if they actually need to be have something more invasive, like insulin given? You know, are they going to react the same way as they normally would? These are things I never would have thought of. So really interesting to hear. Uh, the background on, on um, what you have to think about and consider before investigating a study like this. So there is an emergency medical box. And I saw in there, you had benzodiazepines, haloperidol. So it sounds like manage agitation and maybe um, uh, if anything gets real, you know, an anxiolysis. And then I saw nitroglycerin and carvedilol. So I assume, that's for management. We are seeing positive cardiovascular signs, tachycardia and and high blood pressure. This was, I assume, to manage potential hypertensive emergency or acute coronary syndrome if it if yeah. it popped up.
1: Yeah. So we we've not had to use any of that. And frankly, I I would prefer to get rid of the drug box. I think that it gives the impression that this uh, it has to be used. And I've only heard of one site, uh, I think, using some lorazepam. Uh, but we've replaced the alloperidol with the risperidone, risperidone, uh, ODT. Uh, we still have the nitro. And again, um, this was to be able to, and I think we've replaced the carbetolol with clonidine. So the the uh, I, I think the drug box suggests that there is more Um, urgency to treat these things and a more criticality to treat these changes than there is. We've not seen anybody that's been so agitated um, that they couldn't be talked down by uh, the the therapists that are in the room, maybe just holding their arm um, to reassure them that they are not floating out in space uh, uncontrolled. And so, again, we've only had to use some acetaminophen like 12 hours after the dose and it's been really, really well tolerated.
0: Right. So maybe it's a safety precaution that adds a, a little bit too much ominousness. I, I, right. And, you know, in my clinical experience, it's rare that these are severe, you know, hypertensive.
1: Crises. Yeah. I just, I don't want it to see it when it's FDA approved. I just don't want it to see the drug box go into the labeling as part of the elements to assure safe use. Uh, I,
0: was this a, uh, re- was this a pre-planned recommendation, or was this a um, recommendation from an outside uh, entity on the protocol? Like, did the FDA have any statements on what on doing this? No, we
1: we followed kind of the Johns Hopkins model for the drug box, and also we were trained by the Hopkins uh, therapists, Bill Richards and uh, uh, Mary Cosimano. And you know, I think that that was. As we're sort of tiptoeing into this space, uh, a prudent thing to do, but I would feel very comfortable getting rid of the drug box at this point. Excellent. Um,
0: well, to, to backtrack just a little bit. Sure. I'm very curious. How did you recruit patients? I saw it said word of mouth. Were there flyers? <laughs> what What was the...
1: <laughs> well, I, I think at the time, we some of the therapists that we had knew people in the Madison area that they thought might be interested in participating. And you put the word out for something like this, and it doesn't take much in the way of flyers or just uh, letting people know that the study is is available. For normal volunteers, or what we think are appropriate volunteers to uh, start calling and indicating their interest. And that's the case as well with uh, even now, People hear about us and uh, hear about the studies we're doing or others are doing and we get calls from individuals that are seeking help for depression uh, substance use ptsd it's, it's really kind of sad to, to hear their stories um, that they leave on the, the voicemail um, or when I call them back. So uh, recruitment, frankly, is not a problem in getting interested people, normal volunteers, the problem we're having is more with individuals with uh, substance use disorders, with opioid and with methamphetamine. Uh, Hardest, it seems with opioid abuse, and these folks have a lot of things going on in their life. Uh, They are, um, they they got a lot of things that interfere with the, the complexity of being in a study. One of the other things, Ryan, I wanted to point out is that in all of these sites that are looking at psychedelic research, we've had a difficult time recruiting minorities. And they're underrepresented in the research, they're underrepresented in the results of uh, the therapies, the therapeutic effects, and this is a a problem. But when you think about the design of the study, we can get into that in more detail. Um, Just in general, it requires a lot of interaction with the therapists. There's the screening that I mentioned, there's the multiple visits that maybe my uh, telemedicine uh, or telephone video conferencing to set intention, f- describe what's going to be going on. And then there's this full day of therapy where they are there for really more like 10 hours rather than eight hours. And in the case of uh, the opioid or the methamphetamine studies, we keep them overnight. And a lot of individuals uh, who have a a job that well, a lot of people with a job have a hard time getting away from that job for a full day in the middle of the week to to participate in the study, not to mention the other visits that are required and the, the next day debriefing session. And so if we're going to give them a second or third dose that... Multiplies the complexity and the inconvenience for these individuals. So they may not have a car. They may not. They may be taking a cab or uh, the bus to get to us. And that's also one of the reasons why typically we are limiting our recruitment to individuals that are within 90 miles, 90 minutes away from our site, just because of the back and forth that's required. Which, in the long term, as this drug is approved by the FDA in the f- next few years, um, is going to be a barrier. Uh, it it if the clinical sites that are doing this are going to be urban uh sites it's going to leave on individuals in the rural areas for example and uh, are there going to be enough facilities in general but that's another that's another topic
0: that's a great point to bring up though is that the social determinants of using one of these of, of being studied even um might be disproportionately distributed you know having access to a car having a job where you can have time off being able to mm-hmm. get off during the week uh, you know i appreciate recognizing that up front is helpful in understanding that we need to make progress uh uh in making it more equitable in the future uh maybe you know in the future grant funding to help get people you know time off to participate in the studies you know paid you know that could be i don't know that that's a question for those with more more finance power than myself
1: but, well that's no i think that's a huge point ryan and that's one of the things that we're trying to develop uh, with fundraising at the, the uw centers can we develop a fund um, through these donations where we can support individuals, pay them for taking the day off, which is more than the typical honorarium would be. And, um, or, or travel even or tra- yeah, travel right. allowances. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. And the, the other stigma is that is just of drug use. And a lot of the minority populations are already ass- stigmatized by this perception of increased likelihood of drug abuse and for them to be, um, asked to participate in a study with what they think is an illegal drug it's not if you're doing it with a approved study uh it's a lift and so there's this barrier of perception as well
0: absolutely well things to definitely consider moving forward it is a burgeoning field and i think there'll be room to optimize i hope i i wanted to touch on some of the things you were talking about here so you talked about to make sure it's a good experience they have intention setting meetings and there are meetings with a therapist there's integration with their experience the next day can we talk a little bit about how you ensure that it's a comfortable setting and that it's a positive experience for the patient so who's involved with setting the intentions and integration of of the
1: experience these therapists are largely phd clinical psychologists and they, we also have uh, had nurses and uh, physicians in the past, but right now it's more PhD and other licensed clinicians in that area uh, of counseling psychology. We'll have to talk about the FDA ex- expectations moving forward at some point too. But these are our individuals will screen them with the SKID or the mini uh, uh, mental health exam after the study coordinator basically goes through a checklist of eligibility requirements that sees determines whether or not they're eligible to even go to that uh, mental health assessment once they're approved for further progress into the study the typical set as we call it as part of a set and setting is for about six to eight hours of discussion with the therapists with the people that are going to be with them in the room to establish you know what their intention is for this, this dose what kind of <clears throat> Um, concerns that they've got to address that describe uh, what's going to be happening in rather substantial detail to show them the the dosing room which is a a very comfortable room typically some use a couch we've got a couch others use a bed others use futons but it's a quiet protected space that is intended to make them feel protected and avoid distractions that might arise so
0: I wanted to ask about the protected space. So, okay. well, first off, there's there's sitters. There's people who are there to protect, you know, ensure the person feels mm-hmm. protected and right. cared for during the session. Are those trained psychotherapists? Are these volunteers? I'm just curious who, who are these pharmacy students. I'm <laughs> I'm curious who gets involved with the actual. Um,
1: <laughs> That's that is one of the uh, the third rails right now of. Uh, Psychedelic research and moving forward into the the uh, approval is what kind of credentials these individuals must have if uh, that are sitting with a, the individual during the dose. Currently, the FDA is requiring um, two at least two levels of individuals, two people in the room. Um, one is a, uh, a psychiatrist or an MD or DO or a A psychiatric nurse practitioner, a licensed um, uh, clinical psychologist, and a few other levels of credentialed individuals. The other person in the room has to have a bachelor's degree and a year's experience in mental health. And that's not otherwise described. Hmm. The intention there, I think, well, of, of course, is to have two people present. And I think the reason to have two people is largely for uh, av- avoiding misbehavior of the therapists when the individual has or is in a susceptible state. Uh, there have been some concerns about inappropriate touch with some of the MDMA PTSD studies, um, and and so are, some argue that the two therapists should be a male and female so that they're uh, they can accommodate. Uh, some balance with the session. Others argue that two females, two males would be appropriate. To, you know, maybe a function of what the subject would prefer. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the The other credentials, though, are otherwise not described. For example, the FDA's requirements in their draft guidelines that came out in June argue for a psychiatrist or a D or or MD. So. By those criteria, you could have an orthopedic surgeon um, sitting in there. (laughs) Well, yeah, you might do a good job or she might do a good job, but that's it's not really clear. I think one of the reasons why they want these credentialed individuals is so that they can have some accountability. If something goes wrong, they have some state uh, credential that can be threatened, if you will. Right. No, it's
0: not just it's, a pop-up clinic in in someone's broom closet with a right. friend who went to a year of, you know, right. nursing school or something. And, uh,
1: and there are various programs around the country, C.I.I.S. Influencers, some of them that that are developing these training programs for therapists. But in addition to a didactic session uh, component that can be like 140 hours or so, there is expected to be a clinical experience where they will sit and observe or actually be part of the therapeutic team, that's very hard to come by. I mean, there are not that many places where you can um, sit in and participate as a, as a guide, if you will, with psychedelic experiences. Yeah. And so the ability to train these individuals is stunted. Yeah. And we would like to develop a training program at the University of Wisconsin, but we're not quite yet sure what the FDA is going to require. For those credentials and maybe they are not going to require any specific skill set as much as the creden- the state credential i'm not yet sure
0: that's very interesting that is going to be a, a a interesting development with how this is employed you don't want people flying down to south america to sit in on ayahuasca ceremonies just to get training that, I now mean, that that's so that's very interesting well that- but,
1: but you raise an interesting point though ryan you go down to an ayahuasca ceremony and you've got um, uh, like 20 people inside this hut getting dosed with ayahuasca and they've got uh, the medicine man and some attendants, but you've got multiple people being dosed at the same time. Uh, I don't know what kind of intervention they actually have on an individual basis, but in terms of safety and uh, therapeutic benefit, could we do something like that more efficiently in the United States with these therapeutic trials? And some people are beginning to look at that, to try to make this a little bit more efficient.
0: Right, as opposed to dedicating someone for a full eight-hour set every time. Two, that certainly would people. be cost yeah. limiting. But I, I I certainly understand the two people. That seems like it just makes it safer for everyone. Uh, but does it have to be like that? Yeah, this will definitely be an interesting field in the future. Well, let's talk about the setting. So there's a room in the basement of the pharmacy school where people go have guided psilocybin trips or, uh, sorry, experience. I noticed there was a, I saw in one of the papers, there's a supplementary uh, that shows you the room. I see there's some pretty interesting, there's a nice nature picture. There's one that looks kind of like the cosmos. Who who designed the the artwork in the room? Did you have any input? I could have, but
1: I, I deferred. The, the room was designed uh, uh, by an interior designer that uh, has worked with Bill Linton before. And uh, Bill was kind enough to support the, refurbishing of that and i give credit to the craftsmen at the university of wisconsin madison they i think they really enjoyed showing their their skill set and making a really nice environment with molding and woodwork and such but that was privately funded and the artwork i I think came out of of the interior designers thoughts and we've changed a few of those up oh was there Uh, a um some people some of the the patient's Thought that some of them might be a little bit on the disturbing side. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, there's one that uh, yeah, s- sort of had musical instruments just, just descending into a pit. Um uh, oh. that's kind of yeah, kind of weird. Um okay. I want to call out Cody, Cody Winther from our faculty, who is doing what he calls a polesis uh, study, looking at the Effect of art, the art selection on the experience. And one of the things that you'd see in a new photo of our room is a um, LCD monitor in with which we can display different kinds of art that is um, chosen by the individual from a portfolio so that we can kind of look into whether or not the music selection, the art selection has an impact, particularly in a cultural context, black, indigenous, Hispanic and so on. And so that we're really excited to see what kind of comes out of Cody's work. One of the that is projects
0: really that he's That's really fascinating. Yeah. I love when scientists converge on topics of this nature that are entrenched in a lot of, you know, lore and then seeing you study every possible confounder or, or impactor of findings is really cool. So what does the how does the art impact the mysticism you know, in the MEQ scale? That is really fascinating. Well, that brings me to my next question. There's a playlist. And according to your study, participants rarely took their headphones off. I read that in your study, and then I looked up on Spotify, and I, I typed in psilocybin playlist, and I found the John Hopkins psilocybin playlist. Is it the same playlist, different playlist?
1: Pretty much. The Johns Hopkins one was designed primarily by Bill Richards, who interestingly was a graduate student with uh, Walter Pankey back in the late 60s and 70s. So he's sort of our our... Uh, Rosetta Stone, if you will, to early research in the area. <laughs> and uh it's got a mix of Mahler Beethoven Beatles. Uh, I think the last song in the track is Here Comes the Sun. Um a lot of uh Native American flute music. It's a real gemish. And it,
0: it seemed like not not many lyrical uh no. songs, just just the Beatles at the end. No, so a lot no. of more uh, yeah. instrumental, They're very uh, and
1: that's intentional. The the well, lyrics were thought to be a distraction and potentially disturbing, more likely to be disturbing than the music. We did have one individual in our first study who said there was one particular song that really bothered me. And I, I'd like you to take it out of the track next time you uh, next for my next dose. And we didn't and they didn't notice it again. So um, we feel that there, it's a, the music is important but it is not necessarily critical. And so that's one of the other things that Cody's looking at and others as well. Uh, we've got one of our um, uh, graduate students in our master's program in psychoactive pharmaceutical investigation. Uh, James Osobe, is, is interested very much in the music components, the influence of music on psychedelic uh, response, if you will.
0: Fascinating, wow. I just, it, the, the details that go into conducting the research is really interesting to learn about. Um, and then I did want to talk just briefly. So after patients undergo a session, sorry, I'm using patients, participants interchangeably. I think the mind is limited. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, after they undergo a study there, it looks like, and maybe this is dependent on why they are actually undergoing the study, but they're then observed. Um, and, and it looks like they're taken over to the uh, a research unit at the hospital the crU I think that
1: varies on the study and okay. it, it varies on the site for example our um our MDma study for PTSD would have the the individual staying in a holding cot in our study room our dosing room and there would be a night attendant and another's holding cot in the outside anteroom just to kind of keep them from wandering off. Um, for our initial study and for the opioid and methamphetamine studies, yes, we take them across the street and put them in the bed in the clinical research unit at PW hospital. And part of that is just to make it more convenient for them to have the debriefing or integration session the next day, but it's also to keep them from going home after at the end of the dosing day and being approached by their their dealer or being back in a a, what may be a very negative environment um Mm. that might affect the response and one of the the things ryan that's being argued is that the psychedelics establish a state of plasticity of neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and it allows the brain to modify its its normal approach to interacting with various parts of the brain and in memory and perception and interpretation. And uh, Will Dolan from Hopkins uh, is one of the leaders in this area, and she points out that different psychedelics have different durations of psychoplasticity. And it's a concern that we're increasingly aware of, of how soon is it appropriate to put people back into the environment um, where? the environment may affect how that how the plasticity when it goes away sets up firms up and so um that's one of our concerns but to, to get back to our studies with the opioids and methamphetamine we, we put them in the research unit um overnight after the dose we bring them back for the integration and debriefing session and then they go home and arguably with the psilocybin, the psychedelic effects are gone within eight hours. You could argue that this is a an outpatient procedure where they could just go home.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And that at what you're bringing up there was sort of what I was touching on earlier. And and what you brought up that this is psychedelic assisted therapy. And you know maybe there is a you know it it imparts neuroplasticity and whether those uh, lead to you know pro adaptive behaviors that allow you to overcome you know old learned reward circuits as opposed to Maladaptive behaviors that you know reinforce things might depend on the setting you're in and how it's influencing things. So that's why I think the assisted therapy. And I don't know that that's this is all con- my own pontification, and I am not a psychedelic scientist. But you know, I, I I think that just goes to show why there could be a very big benefit, and you need to ensure that you have someone there assisting somebody through, um you know, work with therapy to set the right intentions and build the right, uh, you know new neural pathways, neural adaptive pathways around us. We
1: think it's critical.
0: Yes. And the integration of 24 hours sounds, you know, reflecting on the experience and how you can use it. That that seems like a great step. Well, oh, all right, last question. Is that, are these going on during pharmacy classes? Yes. So if I'm in school in pharmacokinetics right now, you know, someone might be downstairs undergoing a psychedelic assisted therapy. Better. Yeah. Interesting. It's got to do it sometime, right? Um, Okay, I, I wanted to touch a little bit more, you know, at the end, I, I have some more questions just about the specific studies, but I think people might be interested in knowing what kind of challenges and barriers you've encountered doing research on a schedule one drug. So this is a drug that was essentially deemed not, you know, viable for any medical use, usually there's some pretty tough restrictions on obtaining, storing the drugs. Can you talk a little bit about working with a Schedule One substance and what sorts of clearances, I guess? you know? What exactly did you have to do um, to be able to work with this substance?
1: So there's this perception that it's really, really hard to work with Schedule One drugs. Uh, and, and I would push back, I'll be honest with you. Um, there's really one additional step. That I don't think is that onerous. And so, to do this research, um, really any drug research, even with botanicals, you know, I was playing around with various herbal extracts, you need an investigational new drug exemption from the FDA. And that is um, a process that is facilitated now by cooperation with entities like Compass or USONA Institute or other providers of the psilocybin that are doing their own clinical studies, they often will share their master drug file with you so that you can tap into their their, uh, listing of pharmacology of the drug and uh, and so on. So I needed to get the investigational new drug application approved by the FDA. You need to get approval by the the, uh, Human Subjects Committee, the IRB. Um, and once that is in hand, then I had to go to the Wisconsin State uh, Controlled Substances Board. And that, of course, is going to be different from state to state. But the Controlled Substances Board looks at the protocol, looks at the storage and security uh, considerations, uh, asks, looks at how much we're hoping to possess and why we would need that amount. And then once I get that approval, I submit an application to the DEA and basically give them the same information that I gave the state. And there is a separate um, Schedule One control substances for uh, approval from the DEA that is not that different from either the other DEA or the state approval. And once that is in hand, um, then I go back to the IRB and the FDA and say, okay, I've got all the other other uh, approvals in hand and I can go ahead and start uh none of these organizations none of these offices have been obstructive they have in in fact been very helpful in terms of identifying areas that uh, things that i've missed or that i should do differently next time but in none of my experience with the state uh with the dea or with our local irb have they been obstructive in pushing back just in fact informal conversations with individuals uh, in the controlled substances section at the FDA, they seem very excited about the research. They just want us to do it right and not cut corners.
0: That Well, that's really encouraging to hear. And, you know, I I know, I'm sure it was a simple process for you, but for someone outside the realm of, you know, starting, uh, you know, phase one studies, it certainly sounds intimidating, but it, it, it sounds like there you can find helpful people at all the organizations from where you need approval that can help guide you a little bit through the process.
1: Yes, but I would argue that it's no different, not not any more of a hassle than if I wanted to do a study of, on morphine. Okay,
0: well, that's good to know. So for any um, interested uh, researchers out there, it's not as hard as, as you may believe. Well,
1: the FDA, though, is being inundated with proposals for psychedelics. They have had, I think, the majority of all of their investigational new drug applications in the past five years of, or so have been for psychedelics. Interest.
0: now well okay this is off topic per, perhaps but let's say you wanted to do ketamine just mm-hmm. for people who are so that's a schedule two drug it's used all in many different hospitals similar um would that be a simple for for someone who's not you know just thinking about the process similar workflow you need to a, apply for an fda ind
1: well you would need to, an irb approval to do a clinical study right but the um I think it's Schedule 3. Um, okay. yeah, I, I, it depends on the indication. If you're within the indication that, for which F- ketamine is approved, you probably don't need a, an IND.
0: Okay. But if you're going off-label, then you need yeah. to study it in IND.
1: But okay. you would need, if you were doing outside of your, your normal hospital setting or clinic setting, where you need to have a, a special possession approval as a researcher, then you would need to go to the state and to the DEA for that permission to possess it. Uh, outside of your normal pharmacy, for example. That's really helpful information, I think.
0: Okay. So that's wonderful to hear that it's not as, as hard of a process. And maybe that is why we're seeing an inundation. Uh, I, I have a question specifically. So I was, when I was reading your studies, I was like, well, where did they get? So like, who's making psilocybin? And then I read you made it in your own lab. Well, in in uh, Nicholas Causey's lab. I hopefully I am saying that correctly. Um, so you guys self supplied psilocybin, uh, which is you know what else should I expect? That's wonderful. Uh, but I am curious, and I don't need detail. I don't need to know you know where it is specifically, but what is the storage like, and how is the dispensing handled? Is pharmacy involved? Depends
1: on the site. If we're doing some research at the UW Hospital in the clinical research unit. Uh, then it comes out of the pharmaceutical research center, the pharmacy. And so yes, they they will bring up the capsule, and we hand it to the patient, and they take it. We have a new study that's going to be dosing individuals that are sleeping with an IV dose uh, of psilocybin. And that, again, they're going to be prepping and, and uh, bringing up to the station. In the School of Pharmacy, we take it out of the lockbox that's DEA approved and uh, hand them the capsule. Watch it. We watch them wash it down. So the potential for diversion is virtually non-existent.
0: You don't have uh, uh, two people with separate keys and you have to insert at the same time? Okay. No. <laughs> well, the sleep study? I'm curious what the hypothesis is.
1: Yeah, so that's another that's another exciting study. This is a study that uh, Dr. Charles um uh, our chakras on is uh, leading, and it's also with uh, Dr. Giulio Tononi from the Wisconsin Sleep Center. Uh, They're looking at what changes are seen with uh, electroencephalograms, uh, high-density EEGs, uh, when you give psilocybin to someone who's sleeping. And how how does that compare to individuals who are awake, who are getting the EEG? And so we have a new formulation that we hope to have released and and FDA approved in the next couple of weeks. We just got our final stability testing done. We need to get that report out, but we're going to be dosing it. Um, Frankly, one of the questions is, do we wake them up? And is it safe to give to somebody who's sleeping or do they wake up screaming, but we're Anticipating that we can do that safely and it will be curious to see what happens with that EEG and the perception of the dreams that uh, accompany that.
0: That, that is fascinating. I'm, well, this kind of is a great segue into just talking a little bit about the studies that you actually did. So for one, you did a dose escalation study, right? Looking at uh 0. 0.3 mg per kilo, 0.45 mm-hmm. mg per kilo, and 0.6 mg per kilo of psilocybin uh, in healthy volunteers spaced out roughly so same volunteer they would take the 0.3 about four weeks later they would do the 0.45 and about four weeks after that the 0.6 and then from this study it looks like spawned three research questions that were published right so this was the qtc data the uh, assessment of their subjective positivity and the pharmacokinetics data. Is, and well i am curious so quickly for the sleep study are you looking at the same 0.3 mg per kilo dose the the kind of 25 milligram range
1: dose well for the sleep study we're going to be giving it iv we're going to be giving uh two milligrams two milligrams well it's iv though so it's it's right we have to give it iv because we can't make them up to give them early right. and then so it the... so, so, so yeah, high we're, first we're, pass then, or high we're, low we're, bioavailability it low bioavailability it's it's chewed up pretty quickly
0: okay and then when i saw in the pk study or well maybe i can just do some quick hits from my understanding things that i think would be you know relevant to the listeners who might be dealing with toxicity or detection of the substance it, it looked like So psilocybin is really the pro-drug, right? And that this has kind of already been known. It gets dephosphorylated to to psilocin via alkaline phosphatase. And then it gets excreted about 80% in the urine as the psilocin psilocin O-glucuronide. But it's primarily hepatically metabolized, so it's unlikely that we would need to see dose adjustments for renal dysfunction. And it also looks like uh half-life you guys found was about three hours, so it's out of the system pretty quickly. I'm curious, uh, how did you guys come up with the doses you were looking at? So 0.3, 0.45, 0.6. According to you, I'm sorry, according to the study, 0.6 mg per kilo is the highest dose of psilocybin recorded in the research setting. So it was kind of pushing the boundaries of what we would expect
1: to, to utilize Yes, it was. The point 0.3 was based on uh, research from Hopkins and New York University and some of the other early clinical work of the, the new renaissance, if you will, largely uh, coming out of um, the Hopkins and New York groups. Um, others have used more like 0.15 milligrams or 0.2. Uh, we felt that we'd start at, uh, we we're safe starting at 0.3, the FDA agreed. And so we uh, we didn't see a need to go up higher than 0.6, but there was some data coming out of Michael Bogenschutz's alcohol studies that suggested that individuals uh, in that group might not have the same response to the usual dose. Uh, somebody who did not have a high uh, alcohol use would. And in fact, with our uh, current studies of psilocybin in patients with opioid use disorder and methamphetamine use disorder we have uh, in their second of the two doses they can either get the, the same 25 milligram dose that they had the first time or they can go up to about twice that to 40 or, or 50 milligrams on the second dose and so we've we, by our, virtue of our phase one study we were able to uh, persuade the fda that this is going to be safe
0: And so i guess maybe for some context for the listeners A lot of the historical experience with psilocybin, which does inform, I think, some of the initial research, is in people using it unregulated and illicitly. It's very hard to estimate how much of a dose somebody is taking if they're taking, quote, you know, quote unquote magic mushrooms, because, you know, the percentage of psilocybin can vary. And whether you're taking dried versus fresh mushrooms actually has a big impact on, you know, how many grams they would ingest. But from the Research that I was able to find a, a pretty typical dose for a recreational user of these substances is somewhere between 20 and 50 milligrams. I saw described as a heroic dose, so we are, or at least one that is pretty much guaranteed for the mystical experience. So it seems like we're falling in that range, 25 to, to 50, and uh, p- potentially above that at sometimes. At this point, six migs per kilo range. Uh, I and I'm curious. So you looked at kinetics and we talked about that a little bit. Uh, what would the therap- what would we expect therapeutic concentrations to be? I doubt this is something we're going to measure uh, all that often. But in the emergency department, I deal with people checking labs like, you know, for drugs without really any. Re- rhyme or reason why they just see someone's under a drum so they check it so what would i expect to see to be a therapeutic level it looks like you guys characterized that
1: 20, 25 milligram dose would be around uh, 15 nanograms per mil
0: so that's sort of in the dose that we're expecting to kind of yeah. see about 15 nanograms per mil and yeah. then it, that's the c max and it would decline over time yeah
1: that's that's the that's the that we did not measure the psilocin glucuronide we don't know for sure the activity of the psilocin okay. glucuronide but it probably is uh there's evidence that it is the majority of the solicin available that most of it says the glucuronide okay well, that's good to know
0: and then when you did your dose escalation study you did look at states of consciousness and mystical experience and persistent mm-hmm. effects can you comment a little bit on did you see changes in any of those values between the 0.3 the 0.45 and the
1: 0.6 yes we did and There is there's an argument that the higher the MEQ, the mystical experience questionnaire, the more possibly the greater the therapeutic benefit. There's a there's another school of thought that feels that the MEQ is a little bit biased in terms of its focus on Western uh, Christian um, concepts or precepts and does not necessarily approach all cultures in the same sort of fashion. So it may not be the best metric, but it's generally the one that is used as a guide for the the, the depth of the psychedelic experience. Interesting,
0: and that's you know just a difficult thing in general. And yeah. I think psychiatric research, if you're measuring you know blood cholesterol levels, and then you can pretty easily say, okay, how many times did they have an NSTEMI or semi or you know ACS in the next few years? There's a lot of hard objective outcomes as opposed to psychiatric research, which the, the problems and conditions are incredibly real, but the measurement is, is difficult and can vary between studies. And this just definitely makes it harder to always piece together the exact impact. When you know there are things happening, but it's hard. So that, That's a wonderful point. Um, the other question I had for you, it looks like you guys did the QTC study uh, the impact of silosin on the QTC. And I'll summarize here. It looks like at the dose of 25 milligrams, you get a very small change in the QTC, maybe two milliseconds with a 95% or 90% confidence interval interval of like six milliseconds. Um, you know, when you think about it in a big sample.
1: So we we initially, uh, we did the 12 lead DCGs to look at that and also look at heart rhythms. The data suggested that at the highest dose, the 0.6, but the 90% confidence range exceeded that 10 millisecond limit that the FDA starts fretting about. And so uh, the, the data was passed on with my permission to uh, Dr. Uh, yoga Yoguru at the University of Maryland. And this was, you know, the, the folks at usona Institute with whom we have shared the data asked if they could pass it on to Yoga. And I said, well, if you if you can have the former head of pharmacometrics at the FDA look at your data, I would do that. <laughs> so I I said, sure. And I'll I'll learn from him because uh, he, he's terribly well respected. And um so yeah, they they looked at it in a slightly different way than I did. But basically the, the question um to be answered is is there a, a significant effect of solicin concentrations on the QTC? prolongation. And the fact that the 90% confidence range uh, exceeded 10 milliseconds in their analysis argued for USONA as they developed this drug to do a positive and negative control study. And so they've done that. I frankly have not seen the results from the USONA Institute uh, QTC study, but they did a separate um, study at 25 milligrams to see what the effect was on the, the QT. And I have not seen frowns on their faces so i'm i'm getting the sense that um that things did not go poorly but i oh, can't speak to it okay. so i'm, I'm encouraged i'm encouraged
0: yeah it was an interesting study in the talks community in em there's a lot of you know there's a lot of squabbling over whether qtc is relevant or if you should yeah. use other things like t-wave dispersion and that's a whole other thing but it looks like in this study they calculated using a cute the bazettes and the frederickia formula and it looks like the yeah. frederickia was We're more better. better when to actually correct for the yeah. increasing heart rate. And yeah, yeah. Really fascinating reading the, you know, the preliminary data of how they actually determine this stuff. So very cool. Yeah. I always uh love to nerd out over some good electrophysiology and ECG stuff. Um but that that's the the takeaway for now is it seems like at that 25 milligram dose it looks pretty safe. So one last kind of foray here. Um in terms of safety so a lot of listeners of this show deal with toxicity and Mm -hmm. of of potential substances uh, uh, many substances including you know psychedelics and as we talked about before largely you know i've never run into a case that of somebody using one of these that is in like extreme extremis of disease needing you know that, that isn't usually pretty easily redirectable or have their anxiolysis treated with benzos. But mm-hmm. we do worry about serotonin syndrome. We worry, uh, you know, with a full serotonin agonist. And if somebody's on something else like an MAOI, I would certainly be worried. And, and in serotonin syndrome, 5-HT2A is sort of the implicated receptor, uh, at least in rat models. Has there been any, any safety signals that you've been seeing? Anything that's been worrisome? uh in any of the research you've come across
1: not in the context of serotonin syndrome you know one of the things that's a burden to the studies that are looking at depression is that we are uh, expected to take a person who is on ssris or snris and titrate them down get the taper them off of their ssri or their snri before they get their psilocybin and uh, it's not you know, that's, that's clinically difficult. There's some people that have a hard time doing that, and it also requires the cooperation of their primary uh, prescriber who may be uncomfortable doing this. So that's that's a burden. Um, but the concern is not so much the likelihood of serotonin syndrome, is that the data suggests in those groups that have looked at concurrent um, psilocybin with SSRIs or SNRIs, is that the presence of the traditional antidepressants seems to blunt the effect of the psilocybin. So it degrades the effect, the experience of the psilocybin, we think, at least in terms of the psychedelic experience, um, whether or not it it doesn't seem to have a dramatic effect on depression symptoms um, as much as it would if the SSRIs were gone. So that's one of the concerns that we've got. Frankly, one of the other things that we're concerned about, uh, I mentioned at the beginning this entourage effect where other serotonin receptors are affected, there's some evidence that the uh, uh, serotonin 1A receptor, um, I think it's 1A, is uh, associated with uh, valvular disease. And so long-term exposure to the psychedelics, if someone were dosing it, especially with this fad of uh, microdosing daily or frequent doses of maybe sub-perceptible, maybe slightly perceptible doses of psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs um, may have a, an adverse effect on heart valvular disease. And so that's one of the things that we're, we're concerned about in terms of safety. Uh, another thing I'm concerned about with safety, particularly for those individuals who might be uh, tempted to look to uh, mushrooms, um, as opposed to the synthetic products that we're using, is that, honestly, Ryan, I, if you were to hand me a bag of dried shiitake mushrooms, I wouldn't be able to tell you that they were any different than psilocybes. <laughs> and I, I think that there's a real concern that uh, as decriminalization and even legalization um, spreads throughout the, the states and the country, that um, people will be handed baggies of what are said to be psilocybin mushrooms, but are maybe shiitakes or something else that have been spiked with uh, who knows what. And you know this is a problem with all sorts of illicit drugs that you're having to deal with more than I am. But it's a major concern. Of, this adulteration is a major concern of mine, especially when you're dealing with uh, the, the mushroom product as opposed to the synthetic product.
0: Many schools of thought for harm reduction know, identify lack of access to a regulated safe supply to be a big issue with that adulteration. So, you know, with the excitement around this um topic, I can certainly see people seeking it out if they don't have access to it in other ways. So that's a wonderful point to bring up. And the actual the valvular uh heart disorders I think some people in the talks community are familiar with fenfen, which in the sixties was causing all these valvular heart disorders and in- uh, they linked it to 5-HT2B, but I don't know that I would have had the presence of mind to, to really uh, think about that in the context of psilocybin, which also is going to agonize serotonin receptors and its potential for valvular disorders. So probably not something on most people's radar. So really great point to bring up as as uh, we move forward as a toxic community, kind of observing for adverse effects, that might be something that we have to keep in the back of our minds. I guess just a few final questions, and I know how hard it is to talk for a long time. So thank you for, for doing this so far.
1: No, oh, it's my, it's a, I'm a professor, I'm supposed to.
0: Oh, okay. That's <laughs> what I get
1: paid for, I guess.
0: All right, all right. Then just a few <laughs> quick comments. We talked a little bit about ketamine. I know there's over 299 Gov registered studies going on with that, looking at, uh, you know, reduced suicidality. Uh, reduced uh, treatment for major depression. How about other therapies that are potentially on the horizon? You've talked about MDMA. Any other exciting therapies that you've seen in the psychedelic research space that, that have you interested? Well,
1: I want to call it again, Michael Bogenschutz's uh, studies with alcohol suggesting that there's a dramatic, rather quick drop in alcohol use. Peter Hendricks down at uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, has a study that he's wrapping up uh, psilocybin for cocaine uh, abuse and some really remarkable uh, profound decreases in cocaine use in the population there, which largely is Black uh, and much lower socioeconomic uh, levels. And then the tobacco study. So we're we're seeing some strong signals and we hope to see that as well with uh, our opioid and methamphetamine studies. And there is, I mentioned that these uh, psilocybin sessions are about eight hours, and that is a barrier in terms of the time for the subject, time for the therapists. And so there's a lot of interest in whether or not we can use compounds that are much faster acting, faster onset, faster offset. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm in some circles for uh, 5-MeO-DMT. 5-MeO-DMT is the psychedelic found on the Sonoran Desert toad. Um, that's where the licking the toad expression comes from. And uh, IM or IV or insufflated uh, 5-MAO DMT has a very sudden onset, but an offset within uh, one or two hours. And so one could arguably uh, make this as a fast a session, if you will, as the ketamine, that uh, is in a ketamine clinic. Whether or not the suddenness and the short duration of the 5 meo experience is sufficient to, if you will, work with the medicine during the experience is unclear. Um, It's um, it's being developed by three different companies. One is USONA Institute in Fitchburg. Um, I think GR is is looking at it, and also Beckley uh, Institute in the UK. So there's a lot of work going on. And then the other thing, Ryan, that's really keen uh, on the minds of many is whether or not the psychedelic experience is required at all. And there's some psychedelic-like drugs that uh, are shown to, to increase the development of new uh, spicules and new sy- synapses in animal model, brain models. Uh, David Olson at Burke, uh, sorry, UC Davis um, is one of the leaders in this area. And in animal models where there's no indication of a psychedelic experience, which is indicated by a really fast head twitch in the mouse, they're finding that um, the the drugs seem to cause this psychoneuroplasticity, he calls it. And there's a lot of excitement about whether or not this might lead to uh, improved healing of various illnesses, uh, perhaps uh, brain trauma, perhaps uh, Parkinson's, it, it, the list of things that people are basically... Throwing it against the wall to see if it sticks is is really long, but it's really exciting as well to look at the potential that these uh, may enhance brain healing. But we do know from the studies, EEGs and and uh, fMRIs and such, that what the, the psychedelic drugs do allow is sort of a uh, sort of a reboot of the brain in the sense that and, and Roman Carhart-Harris calls it an entropy where if you look at the, the organization of the brain's thoughts, that it is far, far less organized during the psychedelic experience. The brain is able to communicate with other parts of the brain that it normally does not and get out of it, its rut, if you will, that uh, allows the brain to re-perceive things that may lead to decreases in uh, substance use and improved um, attitudes, getting, getting away from depression. That's
0: really promising and exciting. Throw all the th- thoughts on the floor at once and reorganize it. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Well,
0: and it's fascinating to hear about, you know, the other, there's many other compounds. Psilocybin yeah. is one of an armamentarium. I know LSD has been evaluated. I don't know how close that really is to FDA potential approval. It seems like psilocybin is a bit more of a front runner. DMT, which or 5-MeO DMT. DMT for the listeners also, I I think many are probably aware, but that's the active compound in ayahuasca Um, and you know back in the days of terence mckenna i think they called it businessman's lunch where because they could take it you know at lunch and be normal again by i guess the time they go back to work i don't know um but interesting looking at more rapid compounds and even those without the you know the mystical or psychedelic experience which as we said we don't know yet i guess if that is the treatment or if it's simply a byproduct um, and you're getting neuroplasticity along the way i can envision a future where you have to i've got a treatment algorithm that shows me okay this candidate is better for you know suicide, this one for lsd or this for five meo dmt based off of you know what types of conditions we're dealing with and what what effects we're looking for in the brain but i'm sure a lot more research is going to have to go into it to really identify What's going on, and it's really exciting to hear about what's happening in the future.
1: People at our in our program and, and other institutions, uh, Hopkins and New York University, even those that are quote normal or healthy, are are impacted in ways that feel that they have gotten a lot of insight, and typically the experiences are ex- extremely positive. But I want to emphasize again that these are known doses, they're controlled s- circumstances, and these are screened individuals, but. Uh, It it does seem to be, for the most part, a a very positive experience. One of the things that I think is going to be a burden for this entire industry is the fact that the psilocybin is a natural product and you can't really patent it easily. And it's difficult for the companies that are trying to develop it to protect it um, and to make it exclusive. And it's also going to be difficult. So that's one of the things that's making it difficult to do the research is that it's not clear to investors how they're going to make money on these drugs once they're FDA approved, which is probably going to be in the next three years, I'll be honest, three, four years max, but um, less than five years, it's going to be FDA approved, but will it be uh, economically viable? How do you persuade the insurance companies that one or two doses of psilocybin is more cost effective than a lifetime of SSRIs? and The other issue is that also, that's also one of the issues that's driving the development of these other novel psychedelic drugs is that most of them are synthetic and not necessarily uh, natural products. So again, the potential to um, protect intellectual property is on a lot of uh, developers' minds. We'll see what falls out. But uh, right now, as you say, psilocybin is ahead of the others. MDMA for the, uh, as part of it, The uh, assisted therapy for PTSD is also showing some remarkable results, and that may go to the FDA uh, early 2024 for approval. And uh, so I'm expecting that um, individuals will be able to get prescriptions, hopefully trained therapists for MDMA 2025, maybe 2024. Wow. That's what it's it's coming.
0: And the use of these and where they are used, I think, will be an important part of the regulatory aspect, just like ketamine currently needs to be in clinic. Same with, you know, this is my concern from a tox perspective when we release these things into the wild diversion. And, you know, of course, esketamine was supposed to be clinic administered only. But then I think we had a, you know, COVID happened and clinics shut down and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. scheduled substances could be mailed to people's homes. And then you don't know always where they're going. So it does just introduce more complexity no matter what
1: i i think that one of my biggest concerns one of our concerns here at wisconsin uh, is that the perception is that the psychedelics are completely risk-free and uh, that anyone can use them that um, is not our experience that we feel that um, it's premature to argue for uh, well it's used for well-being without uh, some level of supervision so if individuals are planning on using psychedelic mushrooms or other psychedelics uh, to please um, not do it alone and to do it with somebody who is trusted and not also under the influence because uh, the biggest risk for these drugs is accidents from people that uh, put themselves into harm's way and there's a, a lot of questions that we still need to answer um, even after we get the approval from the fda for psilocybin and mdma we still don't know how best to use them, how many doses, what frequency of dosing. And there's those that are arguing for microdosing as being really helpful for cognitive improvement. Um, Again, I discourage that. There's a concern about valvular heart disease. And and frankly, although you can show that there's an improvement in cognitive function with microdosing of LSD, uh, it was a placebo-controlled trial, and people getting the placebo had a similar cognitive improvement. So (laughs) there's no evidence that the microdosing really does any better than placebo, and there's there's unknown risk. So, uh, yeah.
0: Wise words, unresponsible and safe use, and avoiding of over-extrapolation of findings from a man who has gotten his own psilocybin and given it to people and studied it uh, in a very responsible and scientific way. So that's someone who I would trust. Any final words that you'd like to leave with the listeners?
1: There's so much more we need still need to learn about these drugs. It's ex- an exciting field, uh, exciting to be involved in it, but uh, it's also really encouraging that in the next three to four years we're going to see at least two of these drugs probably get approved by the FDA.
0: I it's been an absolute uh, gift to have you on the show and share your expertise. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hudson. Not only for teaching me, you know, so many years ago, but Sharing your expertise
1: today. Thank you. Ryan, thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun. Take care.
0: Okay, that'll wrap it up for today's show. I hope you learned something interesting about the burgeoning field of psychedelic assisted therapy for all sorts of indications major depression, treatment resistant depression, substance use disorder, who knows what else they'll find. I am incredibly excited what is going to come in the next few years, and I was so grateful to learn from such an expert on what that landscape is going to look like. Hopefully, you took away something that you can bring with you into practice in the future. If you like what you've been listening to, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to podcasts. You can catch the show on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, literally anywhere, and leaving us a review helps us reach other listeners interested in learning about the field of toxicology and related subjects don't forget to follow the show on social media we are at lab poison on twitter you can follow myself at em poison farm d we have an instagram talks talk and a facebook page the poison lab you can find all free medical games resources and episodes at www.thepoisonlab.com and of course if you want to reach out to the show you can reach out to us at talks talk 1 t-o-x-t-a-l-k-1 at gmail.com There's nothing better than getting a listener email saying how much they enjoyed an episode. And you can actually participate in the shows if you hear us dropping a mystery case. Send your guess in to what you think the case could be to talkstock1 at gmail.com and we'll read off your differentials in the beginning of the show. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time. Hey, Talkso, can you play us out?
1: The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. Cheerio mates, see you next time.